And Father, we know that you are not only the ancient of days, but one who has come near in the person of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is that for which we praise you and honor your name this morning. We thank you that we can worship you, having seen now the, uh, the wonderful symbol, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ in baptism. We will celebrate at the end of this service the death of Jesus Christ, what that means for us. Thank you that we can do that, and thank you that we have been singing your word and praying your word and uh, reading your word now. Uh, the word will be proclaimed. I pray for clarity as I do so. I pray that you would give the wisdom for all of us, each of us, me included, to be able to take in your word and allow it to transform our lives for our good and for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I am telling the truth, I'm not lying, Paul says, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. The reason that we gather together every Sunday is so that we can be reminded of and worship our God and how He incarnated Himself in the Lord Jesus Christ and it may sound kind of weird, but when you look at it, and especially when you see the ordinance of baptism and the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, we often call what we do a worship celebration, but indeed, in one very real sense, this is a celebration of death. It's interesting, no other religion has this message. None. Search it out. And we are ambassadors of this message. As Paul indicated, we are not peddling a message of self-improvement. Our message is a man, the God-man, the mediator, Christ Jesus. And on behalf of Him, we proclaim to everyone that God offers deliverance to the doomed. Let's remind ourselves of the testimony of Paul the Apostle when he said, looking back, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And he did that. He reminded us of that in chapter 1. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I want you to note what he tags on to the last of this, of which I am the foremost. Paul knew that he needed this one mediator between God 
and him, the man, Christ Jesus. So let's look at it, and you can see the outline in front of you. It's basically the same outline as we had last week. We will be walking through this, thinking of this theme, and pointing out certain things before we get to the end and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. One thing that I, I've looked for in, in the Scriptures, and what, the reason I say this is that I've had several conversations about this in the, the past days, and, and this is not uncommon, but I do not believe, I don't see any place in Scripture where Paul ever doubted his salvation. And I believe the reason was he knew who saved him. He counted, in another place it says, he counted all of his good works pre-Christ and post-Christ. You remember the strong language that he used when he talked about this in Philippians chapter 3, but he counted all of his good works as dung, as completely worthless. And he also saw himself, according to his testimony in Romans chapter 7, he saw himself as a wretch saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. He never saw himself as innately good or worthy or having merited somehow this love of Christ. Now, he is going to get to, after this passage of Scripture, starting, the Lord willing, this next week, and he's already been talking about certain ways in which this is spelled out. But in light of the fact that we have these two illustrations, marvelous illustrations, and I was telling somebody last week, I always love it when we have a service where we book in the service with the Lord's Supper and with baptism. It's always a beautiful thing because it points to not our merit, but the merits of Christ alone. Let me give you a word of, of encouragement. And uh, I, I don't know that maybe some family members might have fallen into this, Joshua, as you just baptized Alyssa, but I've heard this over and over. And I've got to tell you, I've fallen into it from time to time. And I try to catch myself and correct myself. But there was a time, and I hear this often, when I would tell someone who had been baptized, I'm proud of you. Now, there, there is a certain sense, I get it, I get it. But unwittingly, you and I, in doing that, in saying that to that person, may be setting them up in the future to trust, one way or the other, to trust an experience that they have done, something that they have done. I have started saying to those who have been baptized, I am so glad that God opened your eyes to see the reality that He died in your place to bring you to Him. And that's why last week and this week, last week might have come as a shock, somewhat of a shock, 
to, to some people in this congregation because we talked about the biblical understanding of who we were. I don't care if it's seven-year-old Alyssa or, or someone else, who we are outside of Jesus Christ, a biblical understanding, not just of something that we call sin, and we really don't pin that down, we really don't define it, but if we go further, it's sin and hostility. And then we find that wonder of wonders that God has delivered us out of that, and He's turned the light on, as it were. He's led us to the knowledge of the mercy and the grace and the love and the justification that was imputed to us at our baptism. I was sharing with our ABF class the last couple of weeks my own testimony. When I was 11, under conviction, and some of you know exactly what that means, and I professed faith in Christ, I did not know anything about the doctrine of imputation of justification. But it happened anyway. God was faithful to take that light that He had given me, given to you, even though you didn't have a full understanding of that, so that you will know. And this is what I'm trying to get over and over again because this is what Paul wanted them to know. There's one God, one mediator also between God and man. Don't ever doubt what God has done on your behalf. And, and there's a problem about knowing the just wrath of God if it's not balanced. Look at the quote from Blaise Pascal, and I think he nailed it. I, I think this is a major reason why, why believers today are, are not assured of their salvation. They struggle with these kinds of things. He says, knowing God without knowing our own wretchedness makes for pride. Boy, that is true. If you have an understanding of the love of God and the justification of God, well, you don't really have an understanding of the justification of God, but just the love of God that He's poured out on you, and you do not understand the depth to which sin and rebellion and hostility against God has taken you, it will lead to pride. And that's why I said don't, don't say you're proud, especially of a young person who professes faith in Christ. Always brag on Jesus in what he has done. But then the other side is also true. It says, knowing our own wretchedness without knowing God makes for despair. And uh, I'm just going to tell you this. I'll probably say it again. I am one of those Christians. Perhaps you are too. I talk to them all the time. And there are some of you who have not done this, but I am one of those Christians who through my pilgrimage from 11 to whatever I am today, I have struggled along the way with my assurance of salvation. And because of where I am and because of what I've studied, I've realized, just so you'll know in parentheses before we move on, that it has to do with this works righteousness, that somehow I make myself worthy pre or post salvation experience. I make myself worthy of entering to the presence of God, and that is not the case. So, Pascal goes on to say, knowing Jesus strike, Christ strikes the balance because He shows us both God and our own wretchedness. 
And that's why I, I, I did not study this group of people until I was uh, almost 30. Two groups of people. And I w- was enlightened into some of the history. This is not a, a full history of Christianity. But there was a time in history called the Reformation where you have people, and you got to realize that we, we only hear Luther and Calvin. We don't hear... The Reformation took place in a lot of different places. Luther in Germany, Calvin in France, Zwingli in Switzerland, John Knox in Scotland, Cranmer in England. God was doing a work to recover the church from a works righteousness to what would become known as the five solas of the Reformation. We are are sons of the Reformation. We believe that we were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Word alone, to the glory of God alone. And that's why it is important. And then another group of people came along, and they've been so maligned unfairly. The Puritans, bless their hearts. If you want to really cut somebody who's trying to follow the Lord, well, you're, you're just so puritanical. Thank you. If you know what that means. Now, here's what they did. They took what the reformers did, which was balanced. It had a balanced view of the love of God and the wrath and the hostility of God on man. And so the Puritans continued it. And they would simply teach what the Bible teaches. Folks, you'll never really get the love of God unless you know the hostility that exists between you and God. Not only from you to Him, but Him to you. The mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It may not be an open, visible hostility, but in the heart, every lost person, every person who's in the flesh is hostile to God. We are enemies outside of Christ. Psalm 5, the boastful shall not stand before you. Those who take pride in what they have done or what they don't do, perhaps. And then the psalmist, speaking of God, says, you hate all evildoers. Be careful, but let's take out of our vocabulary the little phrase that is so often misunderstood, God hates sin but loves the sinner. There is a love for the sinner, okay? But there is also the wrath of God that is currently upon those who do not know Jesus Christ. So the Puritans continued in this balanced view that was recovered by the Reformers, and they taught that that wonderful balance of the love and the mercy of God and the patience, the patience of God, but the eventual wrath of God that would come. 1741, why would I go back to a date like 1741? In America, the colonies, 1741, 
there was a thing called the Great Awakening that swept through the colonies. This was no light, superficial thing. This was deep. And in 1741, there was a bespeckled pastor, theologian, seminary president that preached a sermon that in many ways undergirded and led to the full expansion of the Great Awakening here in America where thousands of people were swept into the kingdom by the grace of God. And that, that sermon was entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, that God used to spark awakening. God's glory in saving sinners was uppermost. Anybody ever read that sermon? Okay, several, several. Not many. Google it, download it, and read it. It is a masterpiece of the balance between the love and the patience and the mercy of God and the reality that someday sinners will perish in an eternal hell. Now, Along about that time, maybe a little bit prior to that, okay, after the Reformers, 14, 1500, and then 1700s when the Great Awakening, the early part of that, we had music, music undergirds the church. Do you know that? And by the way, and Jonathan, he, he gets it. Music is not preparatory to get you worked up for the sermon. Good grief, where did we come to that? Well, I, I'll tell you in just a minute. Music is, is worship. It stands by itself as something that we do, not because we feel like it, because it's right to do it. And along about, oh, in that time period, there were wonderful hymns. Yes, hymns. I don't know what they called them. Maybe they called them praise songs or worship choruses, but they, we know them as hymns, hymns, and they were written. And these hymns, by and large, there was some junk, there was some fluff, but there were so many hymns that taught this wonderful doctrine without being embarrassed. But do you know what we've done? We have become, I say this generically, for the evangelical church in the world and in America, we have become embarrassed because we're afraid that some of these old hymns and the words that they used will be an offense to non-believers. They're written for believers, but they sure apply to non-believers. Did you notice the quotes that I gave of some of the songs? Your worship guide. I want to show you how it, and again, bless their hearts. That's all I've got to say. Why would anyone change these words that are straight out of the Bible except that they are concerned about offending people, offending what some people see as their merit or their worth? So, Isaac Watts wrote a song. I'm quoting it twice, once at the beginning, once at the end. Isaac Watts, how many of you know this song? Alas, and did my Savior bleed. Now, for some of our students, maybe they don't, but I think that even in our 
student ministry, we're learning, we were learning some of these songs. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would He devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? There should not be any person in this congregation that is offended by that wording. If you understand what we really are before God. But there have been groups of people that were. And so here are two different wordings to which this song was changed. You ready? Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? Well, that's true, but it loses the bite of the fact that, that we must see ourselves as totally undeserving. Now, somebody even removed it further from the original when they said, would he devote that sacred head for such a one as I? Boy, that just puts it all at the same level. You know, God, you're getting a pretty good deal when you get me. Let's look at the next one. I'm not making this up. These are actual changes. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? Are you a wretch? You bet you were. I hope you're still not. Well, the unsaved person is a wretch. The Bible, Paul calls himself a wretch. Todd Friel calls himself a wretch you've ever listened to his podcast. But some people came along and saved it, uh, uh, changed it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved someone like me. Hmm. Well, now that's true, but it loses the bite. Or this is even further. See, changing things like this never just stands still. They removed it one step further when they said that saved and set me free. Again, true, but not the meaning that was originally intended by John Newton, who saw himself as a wretch. Let's look. This is contemporary, fairly. Keith Getty and Stuart Townend. Now, this is an interesting one because it was almost included in a Presbyterian hymnal several years back, but the committee balked when it said, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They wanted to take that out and insert these words, till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Now, was the love of God magnified on the cross? Yes, but the intent of the authors was to show this deep thing that we called the God's punishment of His Son the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. And they asked Keith Getty and Stuart Townend to change the words, and they didn't, so they didn't include it in their hymnal. I'm not going to get into their motives, but they just didn't allow that. Now, Rock of Ages, anybody ever heard that song? That with Amazing Grace is just one of the... uh, one of the stalwarts of the hymns that we use. Okay, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. This is one of the greatest statements I think that people have done interpretively of what the cross did. You think of this when we take the Lord's Supper. The double cure 
What's the double cure of the, of the cross? Saved from wrath. Whose wrath? And make me pure. And again, those wonderful words from Augustus, top lady, be of sin the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. They change the object completely. Then the last one. Now, this is interesting because I don't know that anybody has tried to change it in a hymn book, but in 2020, at the annual convention of the Southern Baptists, they had a choir that sang this song, and they changed a word. I, I, don't, I don't know why. I, I can hi, uh, f- hardly find anything about it, but it, it says this. And again, this is, alas, and did my Savior bleed. Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity. Why is it so amazing? Grace unknown and love beyond degree. Here's why. At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart. What is the burden of your heart that was rolled away? Your sin. Hostility, rebellion. And for whatever reason, the leader of that choir changed the words and it changes the meaning radically. The burden of my mistakes. Do you know the difference between a mistake and a sin? I made a mistake this morning. I, literally, I was thinking about, okay, how do I illustrate this? I was looking back into my life this past week, and I couldn't think of a single mistake that I'd made. <laughs> Sins, yes. No, I'm, I'm kidding. But I had such a, I, I hate saying this, but I told Chan we've got to get to, to, to church a little bit early. And so I went in. I was in a hurry. We go into prayer meeting, and I had to run some copies for our ABF class, and I made a mistake with the copier, and I printed it off wrong. A mistake is what I did. It was unintentional. I put in the wrong numbers, and I print. I wasted, Mary Burrell, please forgive me. I wasted a hundred sheets of paper. I'll pay you back, Okay. <laughs> I wasted a hundred sheets of paper. There was, listen, there's a consequence to mistakes, but it's unintentional. And for them to say that it's not a sin, it's a mistake. A sin is intentional. It's rebellion against God. It has consequences. If I'd gone in with the intent to mess that copier up and to waste paper, that would have been a sin. core of Christianity, listen, is twofold. Number one, the burden of my heart, sin, and hostility between God and me was rolled away. Two, the wonderful provision of the only remedy, the pouring out of God's wrath on His only Son as the substitute, as the atonement. For my sins. And see, here's what we want to do. Man has been so adept ever since the garden. Listen to me. This is so important. This is why so many of us struggle with our assurance of salvation. We're looking at what we do. We're looking at a performance-based mentality when it comes to us and God. And what, what Paul is trying to say, 
There is no such thing. It's a mediator. But we all, going all the way back to Adam and Eve, we all find ways to cover our sins. Call them mistakes. Create the illusion that man is basically good. And if he needs anything from Jesus, it's help. Or for Jesus to be a life coach. Give me some tips, Jesus, on how I can be a more successful worker or businessman. Give me some tips, Jesus, on how I can do better in my marriage or be a better Christian. And I'm not saying those things are wrong, but they just do not get to the heart. We need a mediator. Now, I talked about the Reformation. I, I talked about those, the music of the Reformation, how it's changed. And some of you won't even recognize this name or names that I could name of how that it's become something that is endemic to, to our evangelical movement in America. He's not the only one. There were liberals that came before him, but Robert Schuller who influenced Bill Hybels, influenced Rick Warren. They'll deny it, but you can you just follow the record and you can see it. Wrote a book called The New Reformation of Self-Esteem, which grew out of this thought that man is basically good. Now, here's what the Bible says, Keech's Catechism. This is a Baptist catechism. I think that he probably stole it from the Presbyterians. Okay, the shorter catechism. But here's what we know from 1 John 3, 4. Sin is any want of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. Robert Schuller just changed it. He put it in writing and he said this, Sin is any act that or thought that robs myself or another human being of his or her self-esteem. And he would be horrified at my preaching today. Because out of that, the New Reformation, do we need that kind of... No, that, that is a re Reformation that will send people to hell. Here's what he said, I don't think anything has been done in the name of Christ or under the banner of Christianity that has proven more destructive to human personality. I'm destroying your personalities. And hence counterproductive, I, I disagree with this for sure, counterproductive to the evangelism enterprise than the often crude, uncouth, unchristian strategy, watch this, of attempting to make people aware of their lost and sinful condition. If you just need Jesus as somebody to help you, then that statement is true. But if you need, because of your sin and your lostness, a mediator, that's something totally different. Jesus, watch this. Here's what he said happened on the cross. The atonement happened on the cross. When you take the Lord's Supper, can you even imagine? This guy had a church of, of, of thousands and some of his protégés, churches of thousands, and his influences spread. Possibility thinking. The biggest church in America is rife 
with this kind of philosophy. It's not even theology. Jesus knew his worth. Well, I'll agree with that. Jesus' success fed his self-esteem. Now, what? He suffered the cross to sanctify his self-esteem. Is that the reason Jesus went to the cross? And he bore the cross to sanctify your self-esteem. That's why it is a travesty if a preacher tells people that they're lost and need a Savior. The cross will sanctify your ego trip, according to him. And a lot of people have bought into that. It's not biblical. It is a teaching, once again, that rather than the destructiveness of what I'm teaching you here today, that is destructive to your eternal soul. So let's move on. We must, before we get to the Lord's Supper, who gave himself, this is Jesus, as a ransom for all. I didn't do this last week, but I just want you to see what all God has, Jesus has ransomed you from. Okay? It's marvelous. You ready? Jesus has ransomed you. He stood in your place. He was the exchange price given to everybody who was held in hostage. And he serves as a ransom for your sin. For those things that you do every day, every day, he serves as a ransom. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And Jesus' atonement came to set you free from that. He was the ransom. Here's something else closely related. When you sin over and over and over again, do you know what happens? It has a corrosive impact on your soul. And you enter into a state, this is pre-Christ. Now, I'm talking about that, but it can bleed over into our lives as Christians Because here's what he's saying. Peter says this, they promised them freedom. These are people outside trying to to get you to do what they do. But they themselves are slave of corruption. Sin just done over and over again. For whatever overcomes a person by that, he is enslaved. And Jesus' ransom came to deliver you from that. What else? Wow. Let's look at another one. Fear of death. Come on now. Almost everybody that I would talk to today in this room would say you're ready when that time comes. And almost everybody that I would talk to will add, but. And then fill in the blank with, I would just like to do this, or I would just like, and, and you, you fill in that blank. There is a fear of death that is so natural because of what God has told us happens after death. The terrors of hell, and they are so real, and we don't talk about those. He talks about those who are held captive from the snare of the devil. Whoops. Okay, that's the devil. This is the power of death. We know that the devil captures us. Okay, let's go back to that. I got ahead of myself. Ensnared by Satan. Ransom from that. Now, this is the one I was talking about. You said, what is that reference? Here it is. Look at the last part of this. Deliver all of those who through the fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. That's what I'm talking about. Fear of death. 
We are ransomed from that. And then the last thing, this changes it a little bit. Do not fear those who can kill the body, whether it's a person or a disease or climate change or uh, whatever else. Don't fear those who can kill the body. There's an appropriate fear of the one who can cast the body into hell. And hell is real. Pew Research several years ago said, I I was shocked at this, 58% of people in America believe in hell. Does that shock you? It does me. I figured most people didn't. Here's the kicker to that. Of the majority of people who live in America who believe in hell, hardly any of them believe they're going to go there. That's the real deception. And that's why we have to warn people. Yeah, we we want the beauties of Jesus, but this is why Jonathan Edwards tried to get into the minds of people that you are in a perilous condition if you're lost. You're like a spider dangling over a fire. He wasn't being grotesque. He was trying to say, I was talking to a good friend the other day, and we were talking about how long heaven is, and heaven is outside of time, and so we can't even fathom. And it it just wonder of wonders how long heaven is. And then we stopped and we started saying to each other, but you know what? As long as heaven is, that's how long hell is. And, And I don't normally think... Hell is one of the toughest doctrines for me. I don't know about you, but it's biblical, and so I believe it, and so I teach it. But it's tough, and every time somebody dies, maybe lack of notoriety, and they died in rebellion to God, David Crosby died last week. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. And their music was, was, they defined a generation and all the rest of that. I get it. But if David Crosby did not have a heart change at the end like the thief on the cross, he is now burning in the fires of a place of torment and someday will be cast into that hell created for the devil and his angels. And there are some people who deny that. And say we'll just be annihilated. Some people who believe all will be saved. But Jesus talked more about eternal hell than any other person in the Bible. We, we, I, I, not we, I need to get this picture embedded in my mind of how horrible hell is. And how wonderful the gospel is. And so to, to, to declare the gospel as... Paul says, this is the testimony given at the proper time, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. And God testifies to this. He bears testimony of his sons. The proper time was 2,000 years ago. That's when Jesus came. Now, Is God still bearing testimony about the salvation of Christ? Yeah. So when is 
the time. It says the testimony given at the proper time. When is the proper time to believe? Now. If you hear His voice, now. Don't harden your heart and leave this place and slip into an eternity apart from Christ. And folks, that last phrase, for this I was appointed a preacher, we are ambassadors for Christ. We need to share with people, someday you and I will breathe our last. I said this at Bill Ivey's funeral. I said, you know, Bill was a great guy. He lived a life. But the only thing that mattered when he came to the end was, did he believe savingly in the Lord Jesus Christ? Today is the day. Someday when you stand before that angel, he says, this is evangelism explosion. He says, why should I let you into my heaven? What are you going to say? If you answer, and I'm, I'm stealing this, if you've never heard the Alistair Begg quote, the little clip from one of his sermons, it's, it's worth watching. But if you answer in the first person, you, you could be in trouble and you're probably going to struggle with your salvation, the assurance of it. Well, the reason you should let me into to heaven is because I was baptized because I went to church, or because my mother and dad dragged me to church, or because I tithed, or because I taught, or any number of things. He's going to say to a great many people who did all those things, depart from me. The only issue is, will you know Jesus Christ? It needs to be your answer. Why should I let you into my heaven? It needs to be in the third person. I don't deserve it but I am trusting in the one who gave his life as a ransom for me, my one mediator, the man Christ Jesus.